Chapter 2, War Stories. Episode 8, Size, Gulps, and Peak Reconnaissance. Factors that affect aerial observation include altitude, airspeed, terrain, meteorological conditions, and visual cues. After 717 deployed to Afghanistan in 2009, preparations began for another tour in 2011. While some of the guys and gals who were on the 09 deployment stuck around, others were reassigned to new units. That meant a new crop of scout pilots came to join the Pale Horse team. New aviators would be trained to fly in the mountains, and people would take on new roles within the unit. Jeff told me about Yo, their tactical operations warrant officer, who made all the difference on the 2011 deployment. Uh, 100%. So we had this kid, and he's not a kid. He's older than me, but his name is Solano. His first name is Josarin. His dad actually named him after the the Joseph Heller book, Cash-22. Um, he's a great man. He came to us from the Marine Corps, um, and he was on the 09 deployment. But when we went in 2011, he was our TAC ops guy, um, which is now AMSO, the Aviation Mission Support Officer. I'm not sure what that stands for, but... He was very into intelligence. And really, as a scout, intelligence drives your mission. And he would he got read on to whatever everything else was going on in the in the operational environment. And he would come into our map board and draw things on it like, hey, I know that this happened three weeks ago, but this is where a bad guy was. Um, or this is what we think is their infill route from Pakistan. And there was a day I was flying one of those routes that Yo, we called him Yo. Um, he had put it on the map board of, of like a, a very high level Taliban guy was coming in from Pakistan on this route on a regular basis. And we were flying it and we, we came in super low. So we'd surprise whoever that was there. And as we popped into this little village on this route, there were four dudes on two motorcycles who were already off their motorcycles, already had their hands in the air and, and were already shaking out their, their man dresses. And obviously, you know, you can hear a helicopter from a few miles away or a few minutes away. And that was super suspicious to us because guys on motorcycles, they could hear us, but unless we like messed with them through, through smoke grenades at them or whatever, they wouldn't get off their motorcycles until then. And these guys were already like showing us their man dresses. Like, I don't have anything on me. So we just flew their back trail a couple hundred meters. And there was a red blanket in a a dry riverbed that the the route crossed. And so I got down real low and blew the blanket off. And underneath it was a chest rack and an AK and a couple other things. And we called back to the talk and request permission to try and reduce it. And, the, you know, after 20 minutes of trying to figure out whether or not we could shoot at this thing, we were allowed to. But trying to shoot rockets and 50 cal at a chest rack and an AK it didn't really do a lot of damage. Somebody was coming into Afghanistan from Pakistan on this route with diagrams on how to build IEDs and water bottles. Top of my game as a recon pilot. That, that, was, that was the most glorious day as a recon guy. And that was, that was because... Solano took effort in trying to figure out what was going like if you're on an aviation deployment and you go in for your S2 brief they're going to tell you what the weather is and where the SA threats are but as a scout if an S2 guy gave you that information you would like whoop them like 
hey, Lieutenant, like, what, like, you're not telling me about the IED that went off on Route Stetson yesterday or MSR Tampa or whatever, and I know it went off because I was covering it. Like, you need to tell me these things so that if, even if I'm just a Blackhawk, fat, dumb, and happy at 1,000 feet, escorting the ISAF commander around Kabul, I know that something happened there yesterday. I should probably take a look at it and see if there's a guy with a shovel putting an ID in the dirt. Those were really great moments. Like Jeff said, peak reconnaissance moments. But of course, there were really hard days too. A lot of times, being that IEDs were such a threat, we were assigned to support convoy operations. But dismounted guys were vulnerable too, so depending on the day and depending on the ground guys, we'd bounce between two different units. Sometimes, we would use a Blue Force Tracker, or BFT, to find ground forces that were out and about. The BFT is what allows various friendly forces to mark their location so others can see where they are. From the helicopter, we could send, essentially, text messages to ground guys to ask if they needed any support. Jeff told me about the day that he was assigned to support a ground force going to do a key leader engagement, a KLE, with some local leaders in the area. But he ended up talking to a different convoy, Hot Rod. So Major Matt Fox is the air mission commander. He's flying behind me with a guy we call Die Hard. His, his real name is Mike McLean, not John McLean from the movie, but that's why we called him Die Hard. And in the right seat with me is Shane Burkhart, and I'm left seat lead, so I've got the radios. And we take off from Jalalabad, and we have a KLE that we're supposed to support. Um, and these five MRAPs are supposed to drive off the hardball down some dirt roads and go to a, a I don't know, district center. So once again, we take off and we tune up the radios and they are already there. They, they took off early or drove too fast or whatever, and they have gone all the way to the district center without any air coverage. So as I check in with them, they're like, hey, we're inside the walls of the compound. We're good. But we see on our Blue Force tracker um, that there is a provincial reconstruction team, or PRT, near us and they've stopped so you should talk to them and they they give us a frequency i think or maybe i went up the common air ground frequency and i got a hold of hot rod five and hot rod is changing a tire they are in four up armored humvees and they're on a dirt road a few kilometers away to the southwest i think i check in with them and they say hey we're, we're just changing the tire we've stopped to do that and we offer them support, and they gladly accept it. So we go and we make sure that there's nothing around them that can hurt them. And we probably do a one-kilometer scan. Nothing on the high ground. Nobody's going to shoot at them. Nobody's going to hurt them. And we do this for about an hour, and then somewhere within that hour, we decide that we're going to do some what we call warrant officer recruiting. So we take the Kiowa and we push it to her limits. You know, we come down and we drag the skids right over the head of the guys on the Humvees. And we do pitch back turns and cyclic climb to push over brakes. And we, we, we fly that aircraft like it's supposed to be flown. Um, and then Matt, Major Fox, uh, makes the decision that we should go back to the FOB and top off on gas. And so we check off with Hot Rod. And they're like, hey, we're fine. Tires almost changed. Thanks for your support. And we go back to the FOB. 
and we get gas and we take off and, and Major Fox doing the right thing as an Air Mission Commander says, hey, our mission today was to support the KLE. Let's go check in with them. So we go direct to um, that compound and I tune up the frequency for the, the guys in the MRAPs and I start talking to them and they say, hey, man, we just heard an explosion over toward, toward Hot Rod. Um, and, and I say, oh, no. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I'm like, okay, let, we'll check it out. So we turn the aircraft about 180 degrees, maybe 150 degrees to the southwest, and I see a giant plume of black smoke, and I get Hot Rod back on the radio, and I'm like, hey, Hot Rod, like, big explosion, giant plume of black smoke, what's going on? And he says, our lead Humvee just hit an IED. We got two KIA, two WIA. And I remember saying something really stupid, like, you're shitting me. Um, and then we got overhead and their lead Humvee had struck a, a command wire IED in a dirt road and the turret, you know, this four or 500 pound metal object was hundreds of meters away. And they said they had one, one kid with, with two missing legs and, and one kid with third degree burns all over his body. And so Die Hard, Mike McLean is in the back calling up the medevac, and we're doing everything we can for them. Um, but from the air, there's not a whole lot you can do. Uh, I remember several times Shane and I having the conversation of, do we just land? Like, can we put the double amputee in my seat and just get him back to Jeff now? Because this, this medevac is just taking too long. But then I called in, I, I picked the spot to stick the Blackhawk to the medevac. Finally, I mean, Jaff is only a 10-minute flight away, so I don't know what's taking so long, but it feels like the seconds are, are hours. And this hawk shows up, and it, it goes to where I told it to land, which is right next to the casualties, and it browns out, and it has to do a go-around. So we're talking precious seconds. And it comes back in, and it picks a, a field right next to that field that doesn't brown it out, and they rush the casualties over. And, and by this point, we've flown our whole day. Um, and the, the KLE guys, the MRAPs from the KLE have, have already driven over and they're providing security. Our, our second scout team is coming on to relieve us and, and we leave. And, uh, I, we go and we park our aircraft and we do the, put the birds to bed or whatever. And I walk over toward the, the hospital and, and they're, you know, doing the dignified transfer of the two that had died. And, I remember Tony Parrott was, he was our troop SP at the time and he was standing there and I wanted to know if the other two had made it. And, and he said they hadn't. And I have never, I've never cried so hard in my life. Um, that was, that was the worst day. Um, at, at some point during that, I had gone back to where they had changed the tire and dropped a grid and measured the straight line distance to, where the IED had gone off and it was 1.2 kilometers down a dirt road. And like I failed and I didn't go down that road at scout and do a, do a route reconnaissance and see if there was something suspicious. And, and numerous people told me after that, that it was an old IED. It had been buried there for a long time. Um, and I probably wouldn't have seen it from the air, but what if I had, what if I had seen a wire? Or, or just said, hey, there's a village up ahead. Be careful. I, I don't know. Um, but that's one of those things that you just have to live with. And you drink a lot more bourbon. 
Yeah. I knew what those sighs and gulps meant. I felt them all the same. In a situation eerily similar, three years in the future, I found myself putting an aircraft to bed in silence, unable to do anything but sigh and gulp down tears. In an effort to make Air Mission Commander, or AMC, the next step on my career progression timeline, my guys would let me act as AMC on days we didn't have a lot going on. I would do the pre-mission brief, make the plan for the day, and make the calls in the air. One day, we were tasked to provide aerial support for a distinguished visitor transportation. The DV was being moved by helicopter from one location to another, and we were supposed to be present at the landing zone. As with most DV missions, timelines got delayed and messed up, and we found ourselves with not a lot to do while we waited for their arrival. We found some check forces that we supported before, not far from the landing zone. They were inspecting a field that was determined to be the point of origin for an indirect round that had fired at Bagram Airfield the night before. They had Afghan National Forces with them. We flew for a while, inspecting the buildings nearby, looking for anything that could help their search for who was responsible or where they might be hiding more mortar rounds. Eventually, though, we were running low on fuel and the DV was due for arrival soon. I made the call to check off, go back to Bagram for gas, and head on to our assigned mission. While we were in the FARP, we heard an explosion and saw smoke to the east of the airfield. The field the checks were in was not more than a few miles away from Bagram. We quickly got everything buttoned back up and took off to check in. Apparently, a guy dressed in an Afghan army uniform wearing a suicide vest walked into the middle of a bunch of Czech soldiers and detonated his bomb. We tried our best to push back the locals who inevitably showed up to watch the aftermath. We flew low and fast. I pointed my M4 out the door at them to let them know we meant business. Come no closer. We flew over them as they cleaned up various body parts and put them back in their vehicles. Meanwhile, some high-ranking officer in a Blackhawk who heard what happened wanted to come out and see the carnage. His pilot called us on the radio to tell us to clear the airspace so he could fly his general by. I told him to fuck off. I got in a little bit of trouble for that later, but it felt like the right call at the time. We flew over the convoy all the way back until they were in the wire. We normally didn't do that. Normally, once vehicles were close enough to the gates, they were fine. But that day was different. We wanted to watch them get home. So yeah, there are days that end in gulps and sighs. Jeff wasn't my only guy who was on the 2011 deployment. Brody joined Pale Horse downrange after flight school. But of course, pilots fresh out of flight school need to progress to what is known as readiness level one. You arrive to a unit at RL3, which basically means you know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to be safely dangerous. So, you progress until you're RL1, which means you can fly with any pilot in command. I actually progressed in country, which was awesome, um, in a couple different ways. One, because you're over there in the middle of it, and it's just like, this is so cool. I'm not just flying circles around an airfield trying to progress. I'm actually out. I wasn't out doing missions, but I was outside the FOB, you know, outside the base, you know, across the wire, you know, 
flying. And I was like, this is absolutely awesome. The second thing that was awesome about it was the fact that they're just like, look, man, we don't have, you know, six months to progress you three months to progress you, whatever else. It's like, we're going out every day and we're going to fly your butt off so that you can get progressed. Cause we need you in the fight. And so as soon as I got to RL two, I started going out on missions and flying with a guy and, and basically just trial by fire. you know, it's like you're progressing in the aircraft in combat, which was really cool. It was really cool. I asked Brody to describe what the 2011 deployment was like. Um, aggressive. Um, Colonel Riley was our scapegoat, Neil Riley. And, uh, well, the one thing I will say for that man is that he was not afraid to take the fight to the enemy. And when he sent you out, he wanted you going out there and kicking some, some rear end. And so it was very aggressive. Uh, and it was, you know, find them and get rid of them type stuff. Uh, and in 2011, it was still like that. It wasn't one of these things where you had to, you know, get, you know, an act of Congress to be able to pull the trigger. And it wasn't one of those things where you pulled the trigger and there was somebody waiting out there, you know, on the airfield with their hand out, give me your video and come with me. It, it wasn't like that. It was like, oh, you shot today? Awesome, man. Let's talk about it. Let's look at it. Let's see what's going on, man. This is great. Inherent to an aggressive deployment is a relationship with the ground force. When I flew with Brody downrange, I envied his ability to talk to guys on the ground. Dudes naturally wanted to talk to me because I'm a female aviator and kind of a, well, unicorn. But guys also loved talking to Brody because he spoke their language. We were. You know, it was a, it was a really cool... Um, is a really cool relationship. Um, very few of, of the guys that we were out there supporting, did we ever see face to face, you know, just because we were on our side and they were on their side of the airfield and, and you just never really got together and hung out and shared war stories in the evenings or anything like that. But you worked with those guys so often that, you sort of got to know each other through the radio, you know, and so you talk to each other through the radio and the first time, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, let's, let's figure each other out. How do you do business? How do I do business? And you just learned that as the mission carried out. But eventually it got to the point where you sort of knew who people were when you were talking to them and, and how they wanted you to do your business and what they expected of you and what you could do. And, and, and it was almost like you worked together enough in some situations that, you just sort of knew what they needed before they even told you what they needed or knew what they wanted before they told you what they wanted and that type of thing. So there were plenty of, uh, you know, letters sent back and forth from one commander to the other. Hey, listen, I really appreciate you guys out there supporting us, you know, this morning. Um, y'all definitely saved some of our guys, you know, by eliminating, you know, whatever it was, but there was a lot of that going back and forth. Um, so the relationship was, was very strong. And there was a lot of mutual respect um, and, uh, you know, not trying to, to toot the, the Kiowa horn or anything, but tons of those guys were just like, man, life is so much better for us out here when y'all are above us, you know, and we really appreciate you being above us. And it was one of those things where I remember, you know, we'd be getting shot at. And the guys on the ground were just like, hey, man, are y'all seeing that? Those bullets are all around you guys. They're lighting y'all up. And you could tell that they really, really were concerned for you because of that relationship. You know, you'd worked with each other so much and got to know each other so much. And 
that you could hear it in her voice. Like, you know, they were sincere, sincerely, you know, worried about you and cared about you and, and wanted to do what they could to help you out from, from the ground and that type of thing. But it was a neat relationship. You know, there were plenty of times when they'd be out in the middle of nowhere, we'd be supporting them. And there was a football game on and be like, Hey man, uh, you know, we've got an Alabama grad down here. Can you tell me, uh, have y'all seen the Alabama score from yesterday? Did they win the football game and that kind of stuff? Or, you know, and I'd have to give them a hard time cause I'm a Clemson guy and, and tell them I didn't care and that kind of stuff. But, uh, but for the most part, uh, you know, it was cool stuff like that, you know, and, and there were times where it's not all business and we'd just be st- sitting there and there wouldn't be much going on, but we'd be talking to them and we'd just be having conversations and just joking back and forth and talking about, you know, where they were from and, and back home and this kind of stuff while you're up there flying around looking for, you know, bad guys and that type of thing. So it was a neat relationship. We had a real good relationship with the ground guys. I asked Brody about the missions they were flying in 2011 because I knew what we did in 2014 was drastically different from his experiences before. I think anyone would tell you that there are two separate parts of that. Um, scout pilot, you know, you've got the recon side and, 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 you know, especially in 2011, they split it. Are you doing the, you know, supporting the ground guys side this time, or are you doing the recon mission today? And they were different. You know, if you were supporting ground guys, you'd go out for, you know, four hours at a time. If you're doing recon, you might be out for five hours at a time. And uh, so there's two separate parts to it, you know, and there were deliberate recon missions back in 2011 where it was just like, hey, look, here's the deal. We want you to fly down to this area, this whole big area, and we want you to recon every single bit of it, you know. And that's not the only time you went. You might go to that place. If you were on recon you know, three times that week, you might go all three times to that particular area because, as you know, you were looking for things that changed. You were looking for patterns. You were looking for anything that might have popped up in the last few days since you were there. You were looking for anything and everything, you know. And the more information you could bring back, it was almost better, you know. You know, you know what they say, even if nothing's there, that's still something, you know, um, because they're processing every single bit of that information. Um, and then supporting the ground guys, deliberate missions, they're going out, Hey, listen, they've asked for Kiowa support. So you're going to be over them the whole time they're out there. And this is what their mission is. Let's go over and brief with them and this, that, and the other, you know, there's that side as well. So, uh, being a scout pilot to me is you're constantly reconning. That's your first mission right there. Uh, even if you are supporting ground guys, you're still performing reconnaissance while you're above those guys, you know? And uh, in route and on the way back and on the way to refuel or anything else, you're constantly using every uh, bit of your capabilities to bring back information. You know, you're just a, trying to be a sponge for all that information so that you can bring it back and hand it off to the intel guys. And then they can sort of take what they want and leave what they want and, and, and build this picture out of it all. You know, it didn't take me long to understand what it took to be good pilot because I had some amazing reconnaissance pilots in my unit. Um, I had guys that I still look back on and, and some of these guys are still in and they're over 160th or they're, you know, here, there and everywhere, but uh, just amazing guys to learn from. And they were awesome guys who weren't conceited and, and egotistical and you're just the newbie and I don't give a rats ass about you or anything else learn it as you go they were genuinely wanted to make you a good scout pilot 
and they went out of their way to talk to you and, and teach you things and help you understand things and train you. And they were tough on you when they need to be tough on you and, and not so tough when they didn't be need to be. And so very early on, you know, from flying with several of those guys, I realized like, Oh, okay, this is what it takes to be a good scout pilot. And I am very far from that. <laughs> so it was one of those things where I learned those two things sort of, you know, at the same time, it's just like, wow, you know, there is so much that I don't know. Cause you come out of flight school and you're like, sweet, I'm ready to go. Let's go. This can't be that hard. And then you get there and you're just like, Oh my gosh, you know, there is so much more to this than I thought there was. I couldn't help but get all mushy with Brody after he talked about the guys who taught him. I told him that he did them all proud because all those same qualities he talked about that helped make him learn how to be a good scout, he had when it came time to teach me how to do the same. He was tough on me when I didn't do my best and he was proud of me when I did. More than that, he gave me enough space to make some mistakes and learn some lessons. There was one day we were called out to support a ground force that was dismounted, moving from one village to another. They'd stirred up some locals who started throwing rocks at them, kids started chasing them, and they decided to move back to their vehicles. I was sitting in the left seat, which meant I was supposed to be talking to the ground guys. I wasn't doing a very good job at it, and Brody had to spend a lot of time flying and stepping in to pick up the radios where I was messing up. He was also flying pretty aggressively, low and fast between our guys and the locals, trying to create a little space between the two. I started to feel queasy, so Brody told me to take the controls. He said it would help me not feel so nauseous. His only caveat was, you can fly this baby, so fly her. That was the first day I felt like a real scout pilot. As I dipped and dove, pitched the aircraft up and around to keep tight over our guys. We landed, and Brody said, I didn't know if you were ready to fly her, but you sure were. Good job. I looked at him and I said, Yeah, but I can't talk for shit on the radio. And he said, Oh, girl, I know. So, the next few weeks, every time I flew with Brody, he would play the ground guy and I would play the pilot. And as we flew to the test fire area or en route to our next objective, he would come up with these hypothetical scenarios so that I could practice talking to ground guys until I was better at it. Jeff and Brody were on the 2011 deployment along with Dave. Dave picks up, telling us about learning how to truly scout while downrange. One, I was, was very early on in our deployment. We were probably, I don't know, only a few weeks in. Maybe, maybe it, the mission had been ours. We had taken over the mission from the 101st cab. And maybe the mission had been ours for a couple of weeks. And I was going out with um, a pretty a pretty senior CW2 uh, uh, scout pilot who I, I consider to be very good at his job. Um, and <clears throat> we were out and we were sent on NAI reconnaissance. And I'm in the left seat as as the, the scout, right? He's flying the helicopter, but he's also obviously still kind of training me how to do this. And we were sent to a, um, a named area of interest or an NAI. And we were told to look for whatever it was we were told to look for. Um, and I kind of took a glance down at a compound that happened to be at that grid 
And I looked down at it and said, yeah, it kind of looks normal to me. And then that's when he stopped and he kind of went into teaching mode a little bit and, and, and really kind of opened my eyes as to, no, 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 what does it mean to look at this? What does it mean to be, if you're going to be the only person to look at this and somebody else has to make a decision about is this a legitimate target or not, just purely based on what you see and what you say about it, how are you going to describe that? Um, not to mention the fact that, hey, this is a, a grid that you get, you know, it's a little, it's just a little box on the earth, but really what you're, you're paying attention to is much, much more than that. Um, you know, you're not looking at a, at a, a 10 by 10 box in the earth. You're looking at everything around it to see if anything that you see kind of matches what you were looking for, um, and why. So kind of opening opening my scope just from the narrow little tunnel vision that I have from, yep, I'm going to fly to that one particular grid, take a look at what's in that 10 by 10 meter box, decide whether it's good or not, and then come back and say yes or no, leaving no details to, that kind of opened my eyes to providing the details that you need. You know, um, if they're, if we're looking for a compound that maybe they were, they were making uh, homemade explosives, HME, there's a whole lot of indicators that may or may not be present there that, that would tip you off as to, yeah, hey, that's legitimate. They might. Um, and so start, starting to piece those indicators together and then being able to filter out, you know, things that may look a little odd, but also are, they, they only look odd because we're so used to American culture. And, and looking at the cultural differences and why that's completely normal in southern Afghanistan, you know? Um, so that mission early on, and I spent hours and hours, probably five hours that day doing that same thing um, and really kind of learning how to do it um, in, the, in the notes I needed to take. Like all our other scouts, Dave ended up not just doing pure reconnaissance missions, but supporting ground guys as well experiences that carry all the good and bad moments inherent in combat operations. Experiences that leave you sighing and gulping. I'm flying with the same guy uh, several months later. We're over a, a ground unit who has walked, I don't know, maybe a mile, a mile and a half from their forward operating base near the Great Bros of Afghanistan. Um, <clears throat> we come there right as one of their guys steps on an IED and the, uh, they all kind of, they all kind of scatter. There's some gunfire going on. Um, so we start doing our thing. Um, I'm flying this time. I'm in the, I'm in the right seat and, and the other guy's in the left seat and he is talking on the radio pretty fiercely, you know, you know, um, trying to give these guys situational awareness, trying to let them know where they're being shot at from. Uh, <clears throat> so a few minutes into this, they send a radio call that I, I will never forget. Um, and they tell us that they're missing somebody. And so their head count wasn't right. And, and they don't know where this guy went. And so now we turn into the, is there anybody around here? And we're looking for, somebody, some sort of insurgent Taliban, somebody like dragging an American soldier away. Um, cause that was our, 
our fear originally was this guy is, is they're trying to take him. And so we're very, very low, flying very fast, looking at every, every possible thing we can, identifying anybody that we can identify. Um, meanwhile, the ground guys are still realizing, hey, this guy's gone. They can't find him. They're starting to double back. Um, and then we, uh, then we go back to the IED site. Um, and we realize something that the ground guys don't realize and that the guy they're missing is, was the victim for the ID. Um, and we see, we see a body on the ground in, in the grape field or in, in the grape row. And then, uh, telling them that over the radio and the other guys having this conversation and, and trying to tell these guys, Hey, look, we found your guy and he's laying here on the ground. And, and then they asked us, Hey, does it, is he, is he alive? I'm a helicopter pilot. I'm not a doctor. I don't know. And so, but trying to get that to them, trying to get that across over the radio while they're still kind of taking fire and was a, an intense, it was an intense afternoon, an intense evening. Um, then them asking us, you know, as, as scout pilots, we used to carry smoke in the cockpit and we would throw smoke out to mark things, targets, um, areas of interest. And, uh, they asked us to throw smoke. And I remember distinctly him saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to throw smoke at your guy. Um, so we talked them over there and, uh, and sure enough, he was, he was dead. And then the conversation that takes place with the medevac they can't clear an HLZ for the Air Force to come and land to get the body. The Air Force is holding for, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half, um, <clears throat> some ways away, waiting for these ground guys to clear an HLZ so they could land their helicopter and 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 pick this uh, this fallen soldier up. And it never ends up happening. They can't clear an HLZ. The Air Force runs out of gas. Uh, they leave. The problem was, was that they couldn't, the ground guys couldn't have comms with the Air Force uh, helicopter and our helicopter at the same time. So we were relaying between the two. And the Air Force tells us they have to go and they just leave. Then it's on us to tell the ground guy, hey, uh, you know your, your friend that just stepped on an IED, you're going to have to put him in a bag and walk him a mile and a half back. Um... <clears throat> was, uh, but I'll tell you what, that, that right there was a, as far as scout missions, probably one that sticks in my mind the most. We had to get two extensions from commanders, uh, but our, uh, our squadron commander told us basically, you're, you're not going to leave those guys. Oh, uh, Yeah. Dave is unique in that he eventually transitioned from these experiences in the Kiowa with no doors, dropping smoke on targets, flying so close to the ground guys you can find them laying dead in a grape row, to flying the Apache. I asked him about the differences between the two. Flying the Kiowa is a far more visceral experience. You are much, 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 much lower. You're a part of of that unit almost you you see 
the ground from a perspective almost that they see it from. Um, from, you know, 100 feet or 200 feet or whatever it is, whatever altitude you're flying, it's not going to be very high. Because um, mostly you're using your eyeballs. But, like that day, um, you know, like you can smell it. You can smell the IED blast. You can, you can smell the dirt. You can, um, it is, it, it, it's, again, it, it, it's a far more visceral, far more uh, experiential thing than in, in an Apache. And, and I'm not trying to downgrade the Apache because the Apache is a great killing machine. Um, but in that, in that context and in that place in the world, it's, we fly them much, much higher where you are very removed from, you know, uh, anybody on the ground. You're very removed from what's going on there and you are looking at it. You're looking through the whole situation through kind of a straw, um, because you're so high up, you're so far away that you need optics to be able to see what's actually happening. You can't see with your naked eye. Versus as a Kiowa pilot, you you can't look at it with optics. One, you're probably too low, and two, you you would be so close to what you're looking at that it you know it's not worth looking at it anyway. Besides the mechanical and visceral differences between the two helicopters, the way they function as a team is relatively similar. You have a pilot in one seat, responsible for flying the airframe and shooting. You have a pilot in the other seat, the one responsible for mainly talking on the radios and quarterbacking the flight. The lead aircraft tends to be the one doing the dirty work of reconning or working with the ground force, while the trail aircraft tends to focus on talking back to higher levels of command and covering lead. Luckily, not everyday flying are days like those that involve grape rose or hot rod or a Catalina wine mixer. Some days, you hit the proverbial gold mine or cave. And I am, I chose to be in the left seat that day, um, in a, uh, a team of two Kiowas. So the air mission commander was a, a captain, a former troop commander who was in the, the, the number two helicopter, the trail helicopter. And then our PI or co-pilot, uh, she was sitting next to me in, in the right seat. And so we are tasked with going to the essentially what is the Pakistan Afghanistan border and and looking for some stuff they powers that be the intelligence thought that things were being moved kind of in this general region right but they didn't know where and they didn't know how <clears throat> and then they thought maybe you know maybe some things are being stashed some places so let's go look the colonel who's who's in charge of this thing is a, a full board colonel and he's an intelligence officer or intelligence branch and he had spent like four or five days with numerous UAVs over the top of this really large swath of area, uh, really large swath of land, looking down at this place. <clears throat> and he couldn't find anything. There was, there was nothing there. So he, he said, you know, maybe we're wrong or maybe we're just, you know, maybe it's not the right season, yada, yada. Because he had been soaking this with UAVs looking down on, you know, unmanned aerial vehicles looking down on the spot for days. And then uh, I show up that day, the, again, the day after Christmas, was assigned this task of, hey, you need to go here and check it out. We spend, I don't know, an hour in this place and looking at stuff, and it looks like a lot like barren desert, barren mountains, but we, we've seen numerous trails that, that appear that they're going back and forth. 
um, kind of over this ridge line, which would over the ridge line was Pakistan. Um, so anyway, we're on our way back and we're flying kind of south down this valley. Um, I say valley, it was a very, very wide valley. It was probably uh, several miles, five miles wide. <clears throat> and uh, we're flying, we're flying down this valley and we're at about, we're about level with the ridge line or maybe the top of the ridge line is above our helicopter. We're cruising back for gas. And I'm just staring out the left seat and I see a, a cave. There's lots of caves in Afghanistan. And so I see a cave and as we get close to it, I look in it and I see these, these lines, um, these perfect up and down lines. Uh, again, something you know when you learn as a scout pilot, there's, there's nothing in nature that's linear. So I, I call out to my pilot. I tell her, hey, come left. At that point, the other left-seater in the other helicopter saw it as well. And I said, hey, man, we're coming left. And he said something to the effect of, yeah, I, I saw something in that cave. So we look in, and uh, sure enough, I can't tell what it is just because it's, it's not in the sunlight. And it's, it's you know, kind of back in the cave a little bit. But sure enough, straight up and down and side-to-side lines. So we take some pictures. We head off to go get gas. And we send up a spot report on our way. As I remember it, um, because it happened to several times at this base, where as I remember it, we got out while we were getting gas. The guys in the left seat, we got out. And they, they being the, um, the intelligence officer, maybe the commander there at that base, met us at the, um, at the far. We were getting gas. And we downloaded those pictures and gave them a quick, you know, down and dirty of what that was, right? Spot report. Uh, the next day, they go out there and they find 15,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate. Uh, ammonium nitrate being the, uh, it's illegal in Afghanistan, it's, and it's, the, it's something that is used to make homemade explosive uh, and, and then create IEDs, which were enemy's number one casualty producing weapon was IEDs. So uh, accounts varied as to how, mu- how many IEDs that stack of, of ammonium nitrate would, would, uh, you know, would create, but, you know, um, uh, several numbers that were, were pretty close to around 300 IEDs. They figured that it could make about 300 good size IEDs. And, uh, and I feel like we, we took 300 IEDs off the battlefield that day and that, that felt pretty good. But like I said, that was kind of a testament to, Learn to be a good scout pilot and learning to just have that curiosity and to understand when something isn't right. Because um, both Mike and I, he was the uh, the scout in the other helicopter. We both saw it and we both recognized it for what it was. It's, that's, that's not natural. Somebody put that there. And then I think that was a probably the best argument I have to, to have kept the Kiowa Warrior was you were never going to see that cave looking down at it. You were only going to see that cave and only going to see what's inside it when you were looking eye level with it. As it turns out, Dave has a real penchant for finding these needle-in-a-haystack type weapons. But we'll hear that story next week. Next time, we'll pick up with more war stories from Afghanistan. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you have a spare moment and would like to rate and review, we would greatly appreciate your feedback. At the end of the series, we will host a special question and answer episode. If you have any questions you would like to ask myself or any of our cowboys, please reach out to us at membersofsocietypodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram 
at Members of Society podcast. Until next week, Death Rides.